I'm Chuck Smeaton from the Royal Institution of Australia, and this is the Cosmos Briefing Podcast. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Kaurna people, traditional owners of the land where I speak to you from today, and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. In this episode of our weekly series where journalists from the Cosmos newsroom bring you their highlights from the week in science, we hear that not all carbon capture is as good as it sounds, why your kitchen sponge is a bacterial wonderland, and how a genetic risk variant for severe COVID-19 actually protects against HIV. Our journalists today are Amalia Hart, Emma Perfetto, and Ellen Fidian. So, Ellen, you wrote an interesting piece this week about carbon emissions. Tell us about that. Um, yeah, I did. So I covered a report in One Earth by a group of Dutch researchers on carbon capture and utilisation. Um, what is carbon capture and utilisation? So it's actually a bit of a tricky term. Um, it, it sounds like it's kind of one process, but it actually refers to this incredibly diverse range of different technologies that involve taking uh, usually CO2, but maybe methane or some other carbon-containing greenhouse gas, capturing it and then using it in some technology or biological process or another. So it goes everything from like taking the CO2 at gas plants and then converting it into methane and burning it um, for energy all the way through to directly capturing carbon from the atmosphere, sucking it out of the atmosphere um, and turning it into plastics or industrial chemicals or using it in greenhouses to um, grow plants. So it's, it's it's actually a very specific term for a really broad series of different technologies and they're all at different levels of nascency some are pretty much commercialized some are very very new very very experimental and it'll be a while before they're actually appearing in the market but the logic is basically if we're going to be trying to capture carbon dioxide and other carbon emissions maybe we can put that carbon to use rather than just storing it underground i've seen a bit of controversy about this, um, but does carbon capture and utilisation actually work? So bits of it work, but the paper that I covered, uh, actually, it was a fairly disappointing find. It analysed all of the carbon capture and utilisation technologies that have been reported um, and compared them to the Paris targets. And there are a few issues with carbon capture and utilisation. So, for instance, if you're taking carbon from the atmosphere and then converting it into methane or methanol for a fuel and then combusting it, it goes straight back into the atmosphere. So you've captured it for a few days. It's a lower emissions process than, say, just directly burning oil or methane, but it's still not actually really a negative emissions process. There are other things that can store the carbon for centuries, so using it in steel slag for building materials. So that carbon is essentially locked away for a really long time. Um, The problem is that most of these technologies are really energy intensive as well. So actually capturing the carbon takes a tremendous amount of energy to do. So these researchers analysed 74 different methods of CCU from a variety of different sources, capturing emissions from mining sites, power plants, all the way through to sucking directly from the atmosphere or from agricultural emissions, through to how it much energy it took to convert them, how they were used, and also the lifetime of the carbon once it's been captured and used. Of those 74, 
they only found that four technologies were compatible with net zero emissions by 2050. All of the rest of them still involved more emissions going into the atmosphere. Um, there were a further four that were compatible with 2030, but most of them really weren't that effective. Now, this is what these researchers have concluded. There are other analyses saying, oh, this technology's got more hope or this technology's less effective. Um, but really they were saying that yeah, carbon capture sounds really cool. It sounds like a win-win-win, but there's not that much actual science behind whether they can reduce emissions effectively. Can you talk a little bit more about those techniques that they found might actually work well? Yeah, so there's a bit of hope as well. Um, the researchers said there are a few promising technologies, particularly um, carbonizing steel slag for building and construction materials. Um, the construction industry is a really carbon-heavy industry, and it's not an industry that's easy to decarbonize in other ways. So if you've got a zero emissions way of taking carbon from the atmosphere, so you're using renewable energy to remove carbon from the atmosphere or remove it from a source that's generating carbon um, biogenically, biologically. Um, and then if you're converting that carbon and adding it to steel slag in a really effective way that doesn't release any more carbon into the atmosphere, then that's a negative technology. And that's something that we should be investing in more. So that's really promising. There are a few things that are promising, but the researchers were saying, if we're going to be spending all this money on carbon capture and utilization, maybe we should just be spending it on renewable energy because we know that that works. A lot of this stuff is still pretty experimental. Emma, I believe you have a story about sponges to tell us. Yeah, I do. Um, so if you're anything like me, every once in a while you've gone into the kitchen to use a kitchen sponge and it is absolutely disgusting because uh, you've left it a little too long to change it out for a new one. Well, researchers have found that it's not just the leftover pieces of food um, stuck in those sponges that are causing all of these bacteria to be able to grow so well there. Um, it's actually the inherent structural property of the sponge which allows such diverse bacterial communities to grow there. So some bacteria prefer to live in either a diverse community, whereas others prefer to only exist with bacteria like themselves. So sponges actually, with their little pockets and nooks and crannies, which um, mimic environments that you would find in nature, like the soil, for instance, provide a sort of optimal mixed housing environment that allow bacteria to propagate so well. And how did they figure out why these sponges are so good at growing these diverse bacteria? So they engineered about 80 strains of E. coli uh, bacteria with uh, different barcodes into their genome so that they would then be able to track their population growth. So they grew these bacteria on a variety of plates, ranging from six well, really large plates to 1,536 really tiny, tiny wells. Um, and the design of these wells would sort of mimic the different environments that they might prefer to grow in. The large wells approximated the environments where many microbial species could mix freely, whereas the really small ones were similar to spaces where they could keep themselves isolated. And it was interesting that they found that regardless of habitat size, uh, the results were the same. Bacteria evolved uh, into a community of maybe one or two surviving strains 
but it was the intermediate sized wells that resulted in the greatest overall diversity of those that survived. So why did the greatest diversity of bacteria survive in the medium sized wells? Well, it's sort of like Goldilocks and the three bears. The really, really large wells were great for the bacteria that loved to intermingle with other bacteria, but were really detrimental to those that preferred more niche environments and vice versa with the tiny wells. So the middle-sized wells allowed both the bacteria that preferred to sequester themselves away from others and those that preferred to intermingle with others to survive overall. You might be thinking, where's the sponge in all of this? We're only using agar plates and wells. Well, the researchers thought that the intermediate wells mimicked the environment found in a household sponge, which allows all the different nooks and crannies for these bacterial species to grow in. Um, So to prove this, they also ran an experiment with a strip of regular household sponge um, and found that it was an even better incubator for bacterial diversity than any of the previous laboratory equipment that they used. So the sponge was a way to implement multi-level portioning and that's how sponge becomes so dirty because the bacteria can find a little niche that they they enjoy most to survive in. Yum. Uh, so other than reminding me to go and clean my kitchen sponge immediately, why is this important science? Yes, I will be going and changing my kitchen sponge immediately as well. Uh, but this also has some important implications for industry. There are a lot of manufacturing processes that use bacteria to produce um, alcohol, medications, even biofuels. And a lot of the time they're just throwing together bacteria into plates or big vats without any sort of real structure to them. So these structural environments might be considered by those manufacturers and their processes in the future potentially, um, as well as for scientists who work with diverse bacterial communities to test which of these structural environments might work best for their research. That's important because we use bacteria to make mRNA vaccines. So that's increasingly important, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, And Amalia, you had an interesting story this week about genes and diseases. Yeah, so I covered what I think is a fascinating story this week. Um, There's this genetic variant that makes some people more susceptible to severe COVID. And they had identified that mutation fairly early on in the pandemic in 2020. But it turns out that this genetic quirk that causes some people to suffer from really severe disease with COVID actually protects them from HIV. So it's just this really fascinating example of an instance in which a gene or a suite of genes can be at times helpful and at times really detrimental. And even more interesting, that genetic variant was actually passed down to us by Neanderthals. So it's quite rare for genes from our Neanderthal ancestors to stick around unless they serve some kind of purpose. And this genetic variant actually rose dramatically in frequency around 10,000 years ago. So the researchers who've been uncovering this trait had to wonder whether it served some kind of purpose back then, because you've got to remember that HIV only emerged in the 20th century. So there's got to be some other reason why the variant became so common. That's bizarre. So how does a variant that makes you more susceptible to COVID protect you from another virus? How does it protect people from HIV? 
So the gene sequence that codes for this heightened COVID risk is on chromosome three and several of the genes there encode receptors in the immune system. So one of those receptors known as CCR5 is what the HIV virus uses to infect white blood cells. Now, when people have the variant, they show a down regulation of CCR5. So you can kind of picture it like a door. The CCR5 receptor is the doorway that the virus can use to sort of get into the body and the cells. And if it's down regulated, the HIV virus can't get through the door and cause havoc. Interesting. Why would this gene have evolved in the first place, though? Yeah, there's no smoking gun at the moment, but the author of the study said he suspects it might have evolved to protect people against some other kind of disease that could have exploded towards the end of the last ice age. So a, probably a prime candidate would be the variola virus, which causes smallpox because that emerged around that time. But we don't know for sure yet. So I guess there's probably going to be more research into that. I'm excited for more research on that. Um, now, Molly, you had another story as well to tell us about gemstone rings. Yes, I did. This was a cool one. So researchers from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, um, have obtained perhaps the clearest view yet of a tidally locked hot Jupiter planet known as WASP-121b. And what they've done is they've been able to piece together what the weather would have looked like on the planet, which is pretty crazy. So this planet would have had clouds of metals like iron and corundum. Potentially it would rain liquid gemstones and it would have had seriously violent winds and massive extremes of temperature. Um, what does it mean when we say that a planet is tidally locked? So some planets, like ours, they rotate as they spin around their stars. So they, they turn into day, then night, then day again. But other planets behave a bit differently. So if they're tidally locked, one side is continually facing their star, their sun, but the other side is just shrouded in perpetual darkness, which is pretty spooky. So what that means is that one side is incredibly hot and the other is cold. And the weather patterns on that kind of planet are understandably pretty wild. So we know that this planet has a pretty insane water cycle. So the atoms that make up water are literally ripped apart on the furnace hot day side and then they're blown around to the night side. And there the cooler temperatures allow hydrogen and oxygen atoms to condense back into water. And then they drift back to the day side and the cycle starts all over again. So it's pretty crazy. Which so, would you rather be on, the side facing the sun or the side facing away? Extreme hot or extreme cold? That's a horrible choice. I don't know. Maybe somewhere on the, on the little, don't they? I feel like <laughs> skirting the boundary. Yeah, I feel like there's been speculation that, like, if life existed on tidally locked planets, they would exist in that sort of little twilight zone between the two sides. I don't know. But then, do they call it the Terminator? That bit where the like the the day line hits the the night. I hope so. Am I making that up? Get into the chopper. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, other than a planet that I would never want to visit apparently um what is a hot jupiter yeah so a hot jupiter is a class of gas giant exoplanets so they're thought to be physically similar to jupiter but they have really short orbital periods so that means that they're very close to their stars and because they're so close to their stars they have these really high surface temperatures which is why they're called hot jupiters interesting Hmm. (laughs) anyway what a week all right (laughs) good job We hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. 
Remember that you can head to cosmosmagazine.com via the link in the description for more great content. You can also subscribe to Cosmos Magazine, Australia's only science print magazine, and Cosmos Weekly with its unique approach to how science, news and the economy intersect. Podcast listeners can get both products at a special price using the coupon code you'll also find in the description. Of course, you can watch and listen to all our Cosmos briefings via the link in the description too. And remember, if you support science and its communication, please support our work at the Royal Institution of Australia. I'm Chuck Smeaton, and today's podcast featured Amalia Hart, Emma Perfetto, and Ellen Fidian. Thank you.